Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk about the unwritten rules of engineering, as well as Jinko genes, the origin of Chazwazas, and the real meaning of there is no spoon. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 85, Unwritten Rules, June 25th, 2015. So, Brian, do you ever wish you had a good user manual to guide you through your engineering career? I do have one. You do? Yes. What is it? I just invested in a whole lot of Dilbert cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, so is is that been a, a successful guide for for an engineering career? It numbs the pain. Ah, I see. <laughs> and uh, so, do you uh, you know? Do you go through the day asking what would Dilbert do? Well, I mean. There aren't a whole lot of axioms in Dilbert cartoons. It's more of a general uh, befuddledness with life and others. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's some there's some good uh, good bits of wisdom in there. Okay, uh, I still remember. Uh, oh man, I think it was a short essay that uh, Scott Adams wrote a while back about uh, how to seem tech- technically proficient. Mm-hmm. And not be like demand things that don't exist, like multimedia fax machines and digital power, <laughs> digital outlets. Okay, uh, that's worked really well. And do you use these techniques in meetings? Yes, I have tried to put a warp core on each and every single one of my circuit boards. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> so it makes me seem advanced. Right, right. Well, so I guess the the. Uh uh, the lesson there is that it's not so much the the actual technical knowledge, but it's our ability to interact with others. Yes, uh, yes. and uh, sometimes sometimes we need that that talent to sort of uh, appear to know a little more than we actually do, uh, and sometimes we need to influence others to do things they don't want to do, and so it seems like uh, a good deal of the engineering uh, profession is that interaction with others. Uh, you know, Absolutely. Try, trying to maintain, you know, there's a certain tension to it. You're trying to maintain, you know, professional, cordial relationships, but sometimes you need things done. You know, you need the part made or you need the, you know, the, uh, uh, the order delivered or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you need something done. And so there's a, there's a certain talent to that. In fact, I, I think that, uh, uh, Professor Trevelyan, uh, talked about that quite a bit on uh, his appearances on our podcast when he said that like 70% of an engineer's job is not the technical part, but uh, relating with others. Yes. And uh, well, I was going to say too, that another part is that you also have to learn how to listen to people too, because mm-hmm. oftentimes engineers can get on a tangent that isn't necessarily related to the business case of the company or, or, right. or sponsor or whoever's doing your work. You know, I want to, they wanted you to build a widget, but you discovered halfway through building the widget, how close you were to, uh, to engineering AI. <laughs> and that, that may be out of the scope of that project. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, as we've talked about, uh, quite often on this podcast, these issues aren't, aren't really discussed in engineering school. These are things that one has to often learn on the job. And uh, so we we thought we'd talk about some of these uh, what one might call unwritten rules of engineering. And in fact, there was a a document, a series of uh, magazine articles that appeared in the uh, I believe it was Mechanical Engineering, uh, the publication put out by the American Society of Mechanical Engineers uh, back in 1944 by uh, W. J. King. That was the unwritten rules of engineering. Now, I'll point out before we go any further, I, I told my wife that we were going to use this topic this evening, uh, the unwritten rules of engineering. And she said, did somebody write them down? And I said, <laughs> yes. She said, they're not unwritten then. I said, you've got a point. Uh, but that aside, the, the idea is that these are, are the rules of engineering that aren't commonly 
discussed. And so we've really got uh, two sets of rules we're going to cover this evening in this episode. We've got the unwritten rules of engineering, as I mentioned by uh, W.J. King, that was written in 1944 and has since been published, uh, updated, I think in 2001 and is available as a book. So if you're interested in this, you can go uh, find it at your uh, nearest bookstore. And there's also uh, one that I uncovered called The Unwritten Rules of System Engineering by David McClinton. Uh, and that was published in 1994. So that's a little over uh, 20 years old. So I think we'll talk mostly uh, once we get into it about the rules of systems engineering. Uh, but uh, before we get too far, we might talk a little bit about this uh, document from W.J. King, uh, The Unwritten Laws of Engineering. And so uh, it is broken up into three sections. And the first section is for the young engineer. And the second section is for the engineering manager. And the third section is, I can't remember right now, but uh, if you look it up online, you can, you can find it. We're going to, we're going to just uh, cover briefly the advice to the young engineer. And so uh, some of the terminology is dated, you know, uh, all the, uh, the references to gender, it's always male, him and man, that sort of thing. So, but more importantly, the question that we thought we'd talk about is whether the advice was still good. The the advice that was being given uh, 70 years ago in 1944, whether that still is applicable in the year 2015. Let's uh, let's just start with the the first one there. We won't go through all of them, but King's first uh, unwritten law of engineering is however menial and trivial your early assignments may appear, give them your best efforts. Uh, And he notes that if you do not make a good first showing, on your present job, you are not likely to be given the opportunity of trying something else more to your liking. There's probably some truth to that. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd also point out that chances are those medial and trivial trivial tasks are probably something your boss has to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something you're probably going to have to do for the rest of your career. So might as well mm-hmm. get good at them early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were talking a couple episodes ago with uh, – Patrick uh, Reardon, and he was talking about, you know, sort of the jobs you get assigned, and he was in aerospace or aviation, but I, I remember having uh, friends that I graduated with who were, who were aeronautical engineers and talking about they went to work for, I think it was Boeing, but it was one of the big uh, aerospace manufacturers, and talking about how their first job was designing uh, brackets to hold down seats inside the the aircraft. It's probably the you least know, they, sexy aerospace job you can have. <laughs> exactly. And they well, go, let me introduce you to the toilets. <laughs> hey, at least and you they, can they, see the importance of that one. Right. But I mean, they were, they were so disappointed that that was their first job after all this struggle to get their aero degree. They're assigned to make brackets for the, uh, for the chairs. Now for the seats. But on, but on the other hand, that how else, you know, the, Some, these someone's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it, and they want to assess whether you're able to do that reliably and and make good decisions. And you know, if if you do that and do well, and you get it, you know, promoted a little bit, you know, maybe someday you'll be allowed to design the wings and the engine and that sort of thing. Well, you're but, making uh, a pretty big jump there. Someone's got to do the overhead bins first, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't sound all that glamorous. But you know, if you design the seat brackets and you just half-ass it because you're like, oh, well, this isn't the engine or the wing or whatever, or the, you know, the cockpit, you know, plane right. hits turbulence, your bracket breaks. Well, now you're, you know, you're in hot water there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need the passengers slide around. It's not a fun house. You're trying to get from point A to point B. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and another one uh, that is mentioned in uh, King's list is number three in carrying out a project do not wait for foremen, vendors, and others to deliver the goods. Go after them and keep everlastingly at, uh, after them. And he notes that most jobs move in direct proportion to the amount of follow-up and expediting that is applied to them. Yep. Mm, I w- I, <laughs> I'm going to go with one of our show's taglines here and say it depends. Yes, you should keep up and you know not let deadlines slip, but... You know, if you if you're constantly hounding everybody, you know, an hour after you send the email or anything, you know, eventually someone's just going to hold your stuff up out of spite, and <laughs> you don't want to be that guy, the overbearing yeah, so one. Th- there's definitely a balance there. Yeah. So I think a lot of it depends on your personality too. Uh, but if you're sort of quiet, introspective, don't really like the uh, you know the uh, 
conflict with others or don't want to push others too much, sometimes it's difficult to to work up the gumption to, you know, go to the foreman and say, hey, I need my part. Uh, when it's a gruff foreman and knows, you know, he, he's learned over time or she's learned over time that, it, you know, a little growl will send away the uh, the engineer scurrying back to their office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to got to stay up and get your job, your, your work done. But uh, yeah, you don't want to just be hounding everybody. That's an attitude that that it's easy for young engineers to have is that you go ask for the part to be delivered. You order something and then you just wait. You know, somebody promised it would be there in two weeks and you wait around for two weeks and you don't do anything until the two weeks are over to find out where that part is, as opposed to calling a week down the road and verifying that, you know, the order has been placed and the parts are being delivered and, and the deadline's going to be met. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I would add that there, um, it, it all needs to be taken into the context of what the urgency is. If you absolutely need that part in two weeks, I would say you better be following up the next day or a couple hours later and verify it's been taken care of. Mm-hmm. If you ordered it, you expect it in two weeks, you don't need it for a month, you know, don't get on their back about it. You know, they, they have priorities to deal with as well. And you may, your job may not be their priority. Right. Um, so, you know, understand the context of, of the overall picture and yeah. that you're, you're not the top. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, you may be the top in your world, but not necessarily in theirs. Mm-hmm. Also, if you need it in two weeks, or uh, get get it with a one week lead time. Yeah, always best to pay a little extra, you know, with some foresight yeah. than uh, you know missing a deadline and going. Ah, oh, we should have just paid the money. Don't give somebody else control over your schedule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It comes back to that rule of pie. <laughs> <laughs> we should just make one of these rules. The vendors will screw you over. Yeah, but not, but not necessarily intentionally. That's just oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Nobody, no, nobody goes to work in the morning and says, "How am I gonna, how am I gonna make my customers' life a living hell?" Uh, <laughs> well, I'll do Comcast, but um, <laughs> yeah. What, what was that, Brian? I think your internet connection cut out. <laughs> yeah. Say nothing. Otherwise, my internet connection will be slowed down even more. Right. So a, another uh, of Professor King's, he, I believe he was a professor uh, when he wrote the book, uh, Professor King's rules or laws was, and we talked about this a little bit before he started uh, recording here, was avoid the very appearance of vacillation. And he notes that one of the greatest indictments of an engineer is to say his opinion at any time depends merely upon the last man with whom he has talked. Refrain from stating an opinion or promoting an undertaking until you have had reasonable opportunity to obtain and study the facts. So what do you think? 70 years later, is that still good advice or do things happen so quickly these days that if you're going to make rational use of the information, you have to be willing to change your mind quickly? Mm. Depends on the context. I mean, if you're in a meeting debugging a a thorny problem, you know, with the entire team and there's four or five solutions up on the whiteboard, then, uh, you know, like in this recent episode of the Amp Hour on signal integrity, um, the guest's name escapes me. But, uh, you know, he said, you know, you got to have your engineering intuition and you got to have your back of the envelope calculations and your rules of thumb and you got to be able to, you know, cut through at least to a first order approximation pretty quickly and go one way or another so you can focus the team's effort on, you know, say just two of those five solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. But also at the same time, you know, it's better to let everyone think you're an idiot than to open your mouth and confirm it. <laughs> <laughs> right. See, and I, I say it depends. Um, you know, I, I think that there is maybe a bit of haste in, in jumping to a conclusion. I have the first three facts and I'm going to jump to something um, without doing some due diligence to, to investigate the details when it's appropriate. And it's not appropriate in every situation, but the vast majority, there's time to, to hold your opinion, do some research. Um, maybe you have to do some of those back of the envelope calculations and then, then come up uh, present an opinion mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe even more so now that there's so many facts coming at you so quickly um, just because you heard one fact 
uh, you definitely don't have the whole picture. Right. So I, th- I think there is some value in sort of holding your tongue for a bit and trying to absorb all the facts and digest all of that as opposed to immediately, you know, spouting a response depending on which way you see the political flags flying. Uh, because at some point, your job as an engineer is probably likely tied to the, you know, the technical results more than it is the, you know, the political winds that might be blowing through the organization. That's not always the case. Depends on your job and where you are. But uh, I, I certainly am, am in favor of taking time. And I know that my impression has been that senior engineers, those that have been around for a while, uh, tend to say no first. And only say yes after they've had a while to think about it and, you know, convince themselves that it will turn out okay. It's a little too true. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and it poke holes in my earlier statement there. You know, if you are having a, a meeting with the whole team and, you know, you're going to be throwing out ideas on what to do for a, you know, solution to a problem, you should mm-hmm. have done your homework before then too so you can, you know – Maybe instead of holding off on your opinion, go in with some data to back up your opinion and, you know, be able to still do your first order and rules of thumb for the information presented. But, you know, go in with some of the legwork already done, too. Sure. Uh, Which, you know, that ties into a whole team thing on, you know, there should be clear goals for a meeting and whatnot. But that's a whole nother episode. (laughs) Yeah. And it's (laughs) so, again, it depends on the organization. If you've got a very supportive organization you can operate in one way if you've got a organization where every meeting you go into, people are lobbying, uh, you know, firebombs the other side of the room and expecting you to, uh, you know, uh, deal with these technical difficult challenges and, and uh, you know, challenging you in almost a personal basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you prepare in a different way. So uh, I, th- I think that Adam was right. It depends. How come every time we do one of these shows, we always come back to it depends? It's because we don't want to vacillate. (laughs) Yes, but but we've long spoken about the fact there is an art, you know, engineering is an art. It's the art of engineering. Yeah. Uh, And so this is part of it. And plus, these are the unwritten rules. If they're really that important, someone would have wrote them down. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I I do think you bring up a good point, though. The first unwritten rule of engineering is it depends. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let me get back to you on that. (laughs) Right. Well, let's let's take uh, one final one from Professor King's book, and then we'll move on to uh, system engineering. And so uh, number 15 in the original list was whatever the boss wants takes top priority. And he notes that you may think you have more important things to do first, but unless you obtain permission, it is usually unwise to put any other project ahead of a specific assignment from your own boss. So in these days of matrix management and uh, flat hierarchies, is this still true? Well, I don't really have a flat hierarchy, but I would still say, yes, that one holds true. Uh, At the end of the day, your boss signs your paycheck. Um, (laughs) But definitely keep in mind that you have to juggle multiple tasks. And, you know, me personally, if something comes up overnight that I do have to jump on in the morning, I'll say, you know, my boss will say, get on that today. That's important. And I'll say, okay, but I'm going to have to push back project X to do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just, just make him aware that there will be trade-offs and then go do what he tells me. Right. It's above my pay grade. So I'm just going to do what I can and (laughs) just, just make sure all the balls stay in the air as best I can keep them. Yeah. I I would say that there is a, a, um, additive property to this what your boss's boss says is top priority beats what your boss says is top priority and as it goes up the line mm-hmm. um, so if you so have you ever been in a situation either one of you where you've you've gotten one directive from your boss and a different directive from your boss's boss yes <laughs> okay, and then we usually side with the boss's boss because again it's above your pay grade yeah. Well, and I'll admit that, um, you know, I don't necessarily view that rule as, you know, maybe as black and white as it appears. You know, once again, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, just the immediate priority of your boss may not actually be their, their priority either. There's a certain, um, or there can be a certain amount of implied, you know, these are previous tasks which do take priority over this immediate thing I just told you to do right now. Right. And maybe my priority today. Yeah. Um, and you know, this applies to your boss as well. You know, if, if your boss's boss tells you to do something, 
at least I will tell my boss, well, your boss said to do this. You still want me to do that? And usually it's, yeah, that takes priority. Right. So, so as, lo- as long as, you, well, so as long as your, as long as your own boss doesn't go d- rogue, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> also, you know, at some point you just, you stop asking for opinions that run the room. Because the further you go up the food chain, the more an opinion becomes a command. Mm, yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll note that in this uh, this list of unwritten rules, number 15 is whatever the boss wants done takes top priority. But immediately following it, and number 16 is do not be too anxious to follow the boss's lead. Uh, he notes that this is where an engineering organization differs from an army. In general, the program laid down by the department or section head is tentative rather than sacred and is intended to serve only until a better program is proposed and approved. So I think that sort of follows what you're saying is the, uh, this idea is that they've hired you as an engineer to be a creative thinker, you know, to, to uh, not necessarily follow, follow each and every order because your boss probably doesn't want to be asked, you know, each and every step you're going to take, but that uh, uh, you're going to take the general direction and use your own best uh, best knowledge, best thought, best intuition, and and carry out the command and and try to make things work. Or at least a good boss and a good job will require those things. Yeah. Well, if a bad boss is looking to get rid of you, there's no number, <laughs> you know, no end to the number of tasks that can be assigned that can never be accurately uh, uh, performed as requested. So. Mm-hmm. So when you take out the guy in the next cubicle, uh, a la Breaking Bad, when Gail became a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Just let your boss know you're not going down without a fight. <laughs> I suppose. I don't know. We should probably get a chemical engineer to talk about that. Well, we had a chemical engineer last episode. You didn't ask any chemical questions. Oh, I was sick last episode. Oh, that's right. Excuse me. Were you guys talking about the meth business? No. Okay. Well. We, were ta- we, were t- we were talking about Six Sigma type stuff. All right. Well, we, we need a street chemist. This is a call for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a call for guests. We'll put you through a voice scrambler. How, how do you make the blue meth? <laughs> you want you want some unwritten rules of engineering? You get the street chemist in. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's do the unwritten rules of podcasting. Let's not go too far off topic. Bah. Uh. So let's us try. We've, so we've we've mentioned the unwritten rules of engineering by Dr. King. You can find them online. Uh, you can go buy the book from Amazon or, or your local uh, book retailer. Uh, but one I want to cover here are the unwritten rules of systems, system engineering. And so if you search on this, you can also find this online. It was written by uh, David McClinton in 1994. And so these are, as opposed to being sort of talking about your relationship to your boss and how you perform. This is more about just the nature of engineering projects, especially systems engineering, where you're having to pull together, you know, uh, bits and pieces from different uh, of the engineering disciplines. So his number one unwritten rule of system engineering is everything interacts with everything else. That should just be titled, welcome to systems engineering, you're screwed. (laughs) Uh, well, he notes that decomposing systems in the simplest way is an art, but we should not forget that impacts ripple through the si- throughout the system and can never be ignored. Yeah, ab- absolutely true. Um, I don't even think that applies just to system engineering. I, I think that's engineering in general. You make a change yeah. here, it causes a change there. Yeah, everything's a system if you look closely enough. Mm-hmm. If you If you want to make a poorly designed system – to combine two well-designed systems. <laughs> <laughs> I like that very much, Brian. Oh, yes. Everything works great until you combine something. Yeah. So so when you say that you admit that things interact with other things, is the outcome usually that things just degrade in performance when you try to put things together, or is it the unanticipated consequences that bite you? Unanticipated consequences. <laughs> I sometimes things get hot. Sometimes things get in trouble because they get hot. Um, I'm trying to think of non-industry specific examples that were very humorous. Uh, I saw a system once where very complicated gantry system 
mm-hmm. where on some days you things would work perfectly great, but as you know, you'd come in other days and all of a sudden you'd turn it on, the linear motors would overcurrent and, and trip out immediately and make the most god awful noise as they were doing it. Couldn't figure out for the life of me what was going on until one day I noticed, ah, on the days when things go to hell, the bay doors are open, the, uh, the, um, loading dock doors are opened. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there was, the gantry system was resting on a, built out of aluminum, was sitting on a steel base. <laughs> and that you had, you'd run the auto tune at one temperature. And when the temperature changed, the bimetallic, um, uh, the metal mismatch, the steel and aluminum would expand or contract at different rates. I can't remember if it was hot going cold or cold going hot and effectively twist the entire gantry system such that it, it you know, the encoders were out of whack and they would overcurrent as soon as you turn it on. Hmm. Totally not anticipated. Right. You know, hmm. gantry system as a whole worked perfectly, but as soon as you put it on the base, it didn't work. Right. Well, and you can play this the other direction. Um, that sometimes I have problem over he- a problem over here, but that's not the place to find the solution. The solution's over someplace else that I can, you know, force a change. That's probably sim- potentially simpler and easier and cheaper and better than trying to fix the uh, thing I'm looking at. I would also say as as things start to interact with each other. The nature of the game, or of the debugging games, becomes a recognition that you have a probability of intercept. If you see something once, there's a high probability you're going to see it if you look at it long enough. And looking <laughs> at it a long time also does not necessarily mean that it went away. So <laughs> yes. good luck proving that you got rid of the issue. Okay. Well, what was that? The one unwritten rule. I remember reading one of the one of the Jim Williams books or whatever. You know, is if you see something on your scope once, it's a fluke. If you see something twice, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I again going back to uh, my experience dealing with with older engineers. Uh, when asked if a problem was fixed, they were always reluctant to say yes. For now, for, I think for the yeah for now, for this very reason is is they um, people always want assurance that everything will work perfectly, and the problem is solved and will never come back. And anybody who's worked with complex systems knows that that's hard to guarantee unless you have an awful lot of control over the system and in the structure and the components and the people, and, you know, maintenance and all this. It is really tough to guarantee that the same problem is not going to come back. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's try rule number two. Everything goes somewhere. Isn't that a rule for sewage? <laughs> no, that shit always flows downhill. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, did did you learn that as an undergrad, or was that a grad level course? Uh, that one was uh, undergrad. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah. All right. Well, well, Mr. McClintock notes that we must account for everything at the interface and follow where it goes. If it leaves someplace, then it must arrive somewhere else. This could be the fundamental rule for EMI, too. <laughs> Leakage currents and semiconductor junctions. Everything mm-hmm. goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Kirkhoff's current law. Very true. Sometimes there are nodes and branches you don't even know about. <laughs> we call them chaswazers. Call them what? Oh, it's a Simpsons reference. Oh, my bad. I'm not. I'm not Chaz- up on w- Simpsons. Chaz Wazer, they go to Australia, and he says that's a uh, that's a bullfrog. He goes, "Oh, that's a strange name. I would have called it a Chaz Wazer." <laughs> Losing me here. Maybe one of our listeners will laugh. You are the the master of the obscure reference, Brian. I'm impressed. Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone who watched The Simpsons from 92 till 99 laughed. Uh, see, I, that's not when I watched Simpsons. I'll let you know when I start. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move to rule number three. 
There is no such thing as a free lunch. Until your vendors come. <laughs> yeah, then you got to listen to the vendor presentation. Right. Now, didn't we have this discussion before what the rules of as to how much free lunch you could take or, or when you were allowed to go for a lunch? Well, I mean, sometimes at some point you get full. Well, right. But you don't have any regulations that you, you can't go with the vendor if they're going to spend more than so many dollars on lunch or something like that? Uh, isn't that only in the public sector? I don't know. That's why I'm asking. No, I have to ask Adam. Do we lose Adam? All right. Oh, Adam disappeared. Well, I don't know of any regulations in my uh, my field. Okay. I'm sure there's. Well, I could run a follow of some rule if I, you know, took it to an extreme. But so maybe there really is a free lunch. Yeah, maybe. Oh yes. Depends on how nice the right. vendor is. Right. Well, the <laughs> well the comment on this is that never become so enamored of, with a design decision that you forget the downside of that decision. Is this another way of saying you will have to make trade-offs? Yes, that's exactly what it's saying, is engineering is the art of compromise. I think I've proposed an episode that was a series of rants about trade-offs. Yes, you have, and we may get there eventually. <laughs> In fact, we may get there next episode. There's no telling. I don't know. It depends. <laughs> it depends, right. <laughs> There's no free lunch. Yeah. So – uh, those are the three basic tenets of system engineering. Uh, our author McClinton claims that his remaining laws just support those three basic laws, that everything interacts with everything else, that everything goes somewhere, and there is no such thing as a free lunch. So uh, we'll, we'll progress here through a few of these, and uh, if it uh, looks like it's extending out too long, we'll, we'll jump across a couple of them and the, uh, the interested listener can go sort out the, uh, or search out the detailed list on their own. Yeah. We'll throw it in show notes. Absolutely. Uh, so number four is never confuse change with progress. He notes that customers love to add features in an attempt to sell their program. Contract design engineers love to improve the performance of their system. Either way, if left unchecked, they both can kill the program due to cost complexity and delay. And yeah, I still haven't seen a 64-bit A to D. Is that something you look for on a daily basis? <laughs> <laughs> no, just I'm just increasing bit rates and everything. I'm just never quite see it on the analog level. You don't see you don't you don't see terribly unpractical things at the, uh, in the analog world. But uh, I'm sure if we dug hard enough, we could find some. Yeah, I'm sure there's some frequency to voltage converters somewhere that are horribly inefficient or very lavish. Yeah. I'd also say, you know, this one references, uh, you know, designs and customers doing feature creep, but it also applies to debugging too. Um, you know, when you first get a problem, you can, you know, take kind of a shotgun approach and make a whole ton of stuff happen. But if you, uh, you know, haven't actually sat down and thought through your, your debugging techniques and what you expect to see and what the results tell you, you know, you could mm -hmm. be thinking you're making a ton of progress when really you're just heading right down a dead end, uh, dead end trail. Seriously, the first thing to do is not sprinkle caps across your board. Unless you have reason to believe that'll help. <laughs> but yeah, right. you can sprinkle caps all over your board and get a completely different result than what you initially saw, but do you have any idea if it's better? <laughs> mm -hmm. But but is this somewhat a bit of, of looking back, you have 20-20 vision. Uh, sometimes you have to make change just to see what happens. And I so I so I suppose it's important to to understand that just because you've made a change, it might not move your project uh, or your business forward. But oh yeah, I, I would think don't, the don't you have to make changes and fail. Calculated change, not just you know, I'm making things happen. Therefore, I must be moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of just sprinkling caps all over your board, maybe say, well, you know. I wasn't sure back when I designed it that this node was really as quiet as it should be, so maybe I'll put a cap there first and see if that helps with the noise or whatever your mm -hmm. issue may be. And then, yes, you're affecting a change, but it you know, but it's a controlled change. And you can you can definitively say after well, maybe not definitively, but you have a better idea after that change that okay, yes, this is helping, no it's not, or I don't know, maybe we'll see. I gotta move I gotta look elsewhere before I can say for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I would also say this is a lesson that those who design printer software have never quite embraced. <laughs> I mean, geez, couldn't you just get a printer with a simple driver that installs? No, it's got to have eight different tools that install and a whole bunch of bloatware because got to differentiate themselves. you got to package more crap with it. Wah, wah, wah. Yep. So I think that engineers can, not all engineers, but it is easy to get enamored with all the bells and whistles. And boy, we love playing with the bells and whistles. And we think because we've invested so much time and we're so excited about it that everybody else will be. And as you pointed out, Brian, it's it's likely that there are a good number of the printer users who really just want their printer to print and don't mm -hmm. care that it emails them to tell them that their toner's low or that they need to buy new paper. Well, I can tweet you too. That'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, now another aspect of this though is i know that certain organizations like to change their organizational structure say every three to five years just to get people out of their you know sense of complacency uh that they feel it's beneficial to the organization to sort of mix up the management structure you know every so often have you seen that? Have you run into that? I've experienced it. I don't think it's very evidence-based. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And so what What was your impression of the process? Uh, trying to avoid pejoratives. I can't. <laughs> no, it's just, it's difficult to tell because I don't think that organizational changes ever managed in a way that would be adequate to engineering sensibilities, you know, taking mm -hmm. metrics ahead of time, slowly implementing changes back, you know, taking steps back if it didn't work. It's a lot like mm -hmm. politics, right? I think the discussions we've had in the past about uh, uh, the way policies are implemented will do, you know, politician will implement X and will create a law, but, there's nothing ever implemented in the law that would say, if this doesn't work and here's how we will know this doesn't work and we will repeal the law, mm -hmm. you know, and that's more along the lines how engin an engineer would work. I don't think you see that with organizational dynamics and management structures. Right. Does, does that kind of go back to rule number six in the previous set of unwritten laws? You know, no appearance of vacillation is appropriate. Yeah. Sin boldly. <laughs> I'd also like to call out a, a certain company that rhymes with schmoogle on this one. I, personally, I just hate every single UI change they put out. They're going more towards this stupid minimalism that just hides a lot of the options. Mm -hmm. And it, it's changed, but it ain't progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But isn't the entire fashion business built out of that? Yeah, but I mean, you know, do we want to kick off a debate that does does fashion really matter? I mean, we're engineers here. Just let's embrace a little bit of a stereotype. I would also point <laughs> out that there should be a rule in here about skinny jeans somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. Ninety four is when these came out. I don't think skinny jeans were a thing then. I don't know about you, but I was wearing Jenko jeans, man. Mm -hmm. I could I could put my whole arm in the back pocket. Cargo pants. Those things. Yeah, they were so practical. The Janko jeans with the uh, carpenter loop for a hammer, even though I don't think any juggalo ever carried a hammer, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody knows where I can get some Janko jeans, please write to me. <laughs> I like, I'm going to, I'm going to skip. We're not, not like we're running long on time, but I like, uh, I like number 10 in this, this list of unwritten laws. There is no shelf. Um, and the, you know, little blurb on that one is we are finding more and more projects where cost is king. We are asked to build everything out of existing components. Of course, increased performance usually means old technologies might not satisfy and finding something off the shelf just might not happen. See, I totally thought this was going to be a very Matrix-like comment, like there is no spoon. <laughs> Well, in the interest of keeping previous guest Alicia White in uh, business, there's totally a shelf. Please just keep using off-the-shelf components because I think <laughs> she's gone on record many times saying she loves getting those prototypes that are, you know, hacked together Arduinos and, you know, pre-built modules. And then when they go to make a final product, they realize that, oh, this isn't even close to what we need. <laughs> Is this along the lines of the paradox of we want a revolution but nothing different? 
<laughs> Maybe. You know, I don't I know mean, if I've heard that one before. Or just the, the the paradox of we want everything to be better and cheaper, but don't change anything because keep change is risk. Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, it's not just no. keep it simple. It's a it's a strategy of minimizing risk by mandating very limited changes or arbitrarily demanding no changes in particular areas. Like, uh, you know, you can change everything but the processor, you know, but that may be the one thing that has to change in order mm-hmm. to get either costs or a perform or a, um, a performance increase. Maybe I, I, I took it to mean more like, uh, you know, with, with some of these analog front ends and stuff that are super duper integrated, you know, you just hook the sensor up to this pin and your output, you know, digital bits come out on this pin and it's all just one nice chip, just add decoupling caps. Um, you know, that's all well and good. And, you know, it, it maybe pushes the envelope on the low end, you know, if, but if you want to push, push the envelope, you know, on the bleeding edge of, you know, what your technology is capable of, then, you know, you got to, you can't just buy something off the shelf. You know, you got to get back to basics and really innovate that way. Hmm. I can see that. that. That was my reading of it. Which I think you just half disproved it. I mean, I think the shelf has a place. The shelf is not always the answer. Yes. It, it depends on what you're looking to do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll turn to uh, oscilloscopes as an example. You know, there's a, a flurry of activity. You know, you got your Rigels and your... Um, blanking on other cheap low-end scopes, you know, and they're they're using off-the-shelf components, you know, the DACs and the ADCs that you can get off of DigiKey, and you know, they're not they're not running custom ASICs like uh, you know your Techs and your Agilents or excuse me, Keysights and your Lacroix are. You know, they're not pushing the hundred hundred gigahertz bandwidth that uh, the Signal Path just tore down not too long ago. Oscilloscope, they're they're doing the you know maybe up to a gigahertz stuff that you can do off the shelf nowadays pretty easily. So is the is the caveat is that there is no shelf for projects of sufficient complexity? I would say that yes, I'd reword it that way. You know, and I would even argue no, there's still a place because um, even a complex project is going to have simple pieces mm-hmm. that um, you can take. There's no reason to design everything from basics, um, right? When you can take, you know, maybe that um, super high end scope. You can take an off-the-shelf LCD driver or something. Um, you know, not really knowing what I'm talking about. Um, because, <laughs> you know, maybe you don't need that super high performance on the display. You need it really on the actual, the, the scope parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wh- why go into huge amounts of details on every little piece? Sure. Well, because everything interacts with everything else, Adam. God, you forgot rule number one. <laughs> everything goes somewhere. The rule number comes one is in the scope and goes out on the display. <laughs> rule number one is you don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, but Brian, you've talked about this before that, that p- components, at least in the electrical world, are changing so quick. So the mechanical world, you know, if I find a, a spring, I find a damper, I find a you know, a screw, I find, you know, whatever, the likelihood is I, 10 years later, I can still find the manufacturer making that part. Your world is not that way. So even if you buy off the shelf parts, there's no guarantee it's going to be available a month later. Is that right? Um, yeah, maybe not a month time scale, but, uh, you know, generally production time scales are measured in years everywhere else, but mm-hmm. the mobile industry, well, I don't work, and most of us don't work in the mobile industry, but the mobile industry is in the driver's seat with respect to IC development at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a large, unresolved issue that will consume a ton of engineering bandwidth, and we're still developing strategies to deal with it, uh, one of which is just changing perceptions. You know, we may, in our industry just come to accept it. You can't make things for more than two or three years and then expect a design cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. We're almost already getting there in a lot of products. Uh, you know, it used to be that a model of toaster would come out and that same model would be produced for five or 10 years. And it seems like uh, anymore, 
just about any, uh, even consumer items, you you buy them and they a year later they've changed. Yeah, yeah, that was just in the latest issue of Toasters Quarterly. They were talking about the rapid pace of the toaster change. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, that's uh, I think it's I wouldn't confuse industrial design and and product design with the fundamental engineering aspect like the heaters and the toasters aren't changing the um you know because they're generally not solid state sure you said I, I can't imagine that they would be solid state somebody has just patented a solid state driven toaster um <laughs> i don't know that a whole lot is changing i don't think that that reflects the mobilization of ic's it's the uh, uh, trying to make a decision on which ARM processor you're going to use based on how long does Atmel Planet actually make it this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And will it blow my entire cold code base when they end of life this in two months? Right. Right. I'm sure Intel buying uh, uh, who they just buy Atmel? No, um, Altera. Altera. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to make things better. I don't know. There's definitely shelves in civil engineering. I know I, I've seen a lot of SimCity being played, and you know, you just click <laughs> road, and boom, one appears. So there's got to be a big warehouse full of prefab road sections you just slap together. Uh, well, I mean, I was going to argue there is actually a, a relatively large amount of of uh, shelf work. Um, there's a lot of standards that are developed that you know build the building block. And I take this building block and this building block and this building block and, you know, here, go build this thing with six building blocks um, rather than having to, to redesign those, those specific parts every single time or um, those specific layouts. Mm-hmm. But That's why it, it's, interstate uh, exits are usually pretty standardized. Yep. Absolutely. Somewhere I did the cloverleaf. <laughs> so, uh, Adam, if, if you've been assigned an intersection, you've got to put, you know, traffic lights on. How much of that is, is boilerplate? And how much do you have to get in there and, and uh, customize to the situation? It, it really depends. Huh. If, if the weather's before. nice, Adam always has to customize. He's out there on the side of the road in his lawn chair and a beer, <laughs> counting cars. <That's> awesome. <laughs> um, the, the truth is, if it's a, a relatively low volume no weird geometry suburb it's maybe pretty like simple a, a subdivision maybe well i'm thinking like uh you know a gravel road intersecting a rural highway it's ah. really quite simple you throw up um Some a dirt. couple of stop signs and <laughs> you go with that um but as it gets more and more complex you, you get into you, you got to get to that more that higher end design mm-hmm. so adam one thing i've noticed is uh Historically, a lot of bridges I've seen have, you know, like the deck, the uh, structure underneath the decking is all either steel or concrete I-beams. More and more I'm seeing, what is it? It's uh, like pre-tensioned concrete segments. Those uh, kind of um, trapezoidal segments that, you know, they're long, they're precast, and they've got steel cable on the inside that's, well, I guess the first thing is the the concrete beams you're used to seeing on bridges. Yeah, I almost guarantee are pre-stressed. Yes. Um. Anyway, but well, but um, they all they all they all look the same. They look like yeah cots, if you will. Yeah, and and that's true. A lot, and we're still building a lot of those very small. You get across four lanes of traffic, get across a small river. Um, they're very very similar. Because it's it's easy to build, it works well, and it's a design that's been perfected, or at least a, a design style that has been perfected over hundreds of years. So the but it seems like the newer style re- relies on custom casts for each segment. It, it seems like there's it doesn't seem like there's a lot of repeatability. Well, that's when you're getting into the bigger bridges. Yes, exactly. And, and that's you're getting into your more complex structures um so you know, like so would you yeah, would you would you say though that the bridge designers are starting to abandon off the shelf and go to more kind of pure play custom casting type stuff 
No, I would I would not say that. Oh, okay. Because I would say a majority of the bridges we're still building are those very simple, small bridges. Okay. It's just not the ones that make the news. Okay. Um, and it just so happens right now we're building a lot of very large signature bridges because we built a lot of them back in the 40s um, and the 50s, and it's time to replace them. That puts some perspective on my query. Yeah. I mean, I would say of all the bridges that currently are projects I'm keeping track of, uh, there's only a handful of bridges that are not the uh, you know, standard pre-stressed concrete beams on two or three spans. Well, that settles it. Civil engineering is all caught. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but you have to know which part to pick. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I, I would definitely not <laughs> no, say I, there's no engineering in civil. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we, so we may have beaten the uh, the law of there is no shelf to death. Does, uh, does anyone have another law they want to discuss? Number 21, nice and easy, real quick. Never use a word chart when a picture chart will do. That's because a picture is a kilo word. Run that by me again. Never use a word chart when a picture chart will do. You know, because if you're going to do your unit conversion, a picture is, you know, one kilo word. Ah. jeez. <laughs> Come on. Get your prefixes prefixes down. Oh. <laughs> oh. Are you guys booing me on my own podcast? <laughs> That's it. I'm going to sit the rest of this episode out in my trailer. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a boo, more of a groan. <laughs> well, I'll take it, I guess, for now. What exactly is a word chart? I don't know. Let's debate that for a while. <laughs> I guess that means don't make a PowerPoint that's just bulleted slides. Yeah, I think that's that. Don't use a PowerPoint slide when you can show a picture. Yeah. By the way, if there's any young engineers out there, do not use a PowerPoint as a script. Yes. Yes. Do not get up and literally read your PowerPoint to your to your audience. I'm going to take it a step farther than Brian. Do not use PowerPoint as a script. I don't care who you are. Okay, I'll agree with that. <laughs> Useful advice here on the engineering comments. Yeah, the, the general idea is that the the PowerPoint should be there just to complement what you're doing, but people should be listening to you, not reading the chart. And uh, I was always accused of making my my slides for even technical presentations too minimal. I would put like one equation on a slide uh, because I wanted people to be listening to what I was saying, not not reading ahead, you know, three three equations or three paragraphs down. Uh, some people objected to that, but. Well, that was my presentation. Well, and, so you and put in lots of cool animations. So only one appears no. at a time. <laughs> no. For those who don't know, that little white box that doesn't do anything at the bottom of the PowerPoint screen, that's where you type all the stuff that, that you want to say, not on the slide. <laughs> oh, that's where you store the notes in PowerPoint? Yeah. The notes field, yes. Yep. And if you really want to give that to everybody, you can print that or email it to them after the fact. Right. Yeah. So what do people think it means never go at the first wave, number 22, and then number 23 predictably never go at the second wave either? I think it's in relation to surfing. You know, you want to make sure the water's good. There's no rocks. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not in the coast. Because a lot of, lot of engineers out in Silicon Valley, you know, you can get to the beach pretty easily. I think that's what that has to do with. Yeah. Number 22 and 23 don't apply to our uh, our flyover state listeners. <laughs> 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 well, I would say that it it does apply. Just my observation was there were people that had a great talent for coming in early on a project and then leaving the project before the hard work had to be done. So I think that if you are one who wants to, you know, advance politically and rise quickly through the organization that you have you have to be careful about which which projects you get assigned to. And uh, our author of this rule notes that the systems engineering management of a large project is very difficult in the startup phase. And I, I think they're just noting that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough role to play. And you, you know, 
things are going to fail and you're going to have to account for those failures. And if you're, especially if you're in an organization that's not supportive of that type of uh, development activity, uh, it could be, it could be harmful to your career. Yeah. Kind of a look before you leave rule here. Mm -hmm. Let the other lemmings run off the cliff first, I guess is another way of saying this. Right. So, so never go in with the first wave is rule 22 and never go in with the second wave either is rule number 23, indicating that even after you've gotten the first pass at it, that the second pass may still be rocky. Uh, but again, it depends on what you want to do. You know, uh, Marines, you know, charge to the sound of the fire, right? Uh, some engineers want to be in the midst of that problem solving because that's what they really want is not the, you know, uh, not the, uh, the, not the approval necessarily of, of their management, but they want the challenge of the technical problem. So I, I think it depends on what you want. Hmm. Can we all agree we hate number 24? I don't know. What is number 24? Uh, I think it's for Aztecs. <laughs> <laughs> Have the heart of a child, but keep it in a jar on your desk. Mm-hmm. Quote, you need a management style with a firm manner, manner, and that gives the appearance that you know which way to lead. Hang tough. I think that just stretched their list out there. I'm not really sure what they're getting at. Never I, I just see a sweat. Uh, no, so I, so I would claim that that is actually important. That is, you want to, you want to still have the, the childlike wonder about, you know, curiosity about the world around you. And an enthusiasm for engineering, but oftentimes when you are, especially when you're managing and you're leading through tough times, you have to be firm. You know, you can't you can't show the the fear of a child. Uh, you can't show the um, uh, the anger of a child. Uh, you you have to be steady. There's a uh, I can't remember what the name of the book is. It's something like Warm Heart, Black Face. Uh, but anyway, it was talking about. You know, if, if you have a surgeon operating on you, uh, doing open heart surgery or something, you want that surgeon to care about you, to be empathetic to your pain, uh, to want you to get better. You want all that stuff. But during the surgery, you want that, that surgeon to be emotionless. You know, it's an operation. You're going, you know, check one, check two, going do this, do that, go down the checklist. Uh, because at the point where while they're cutting into you, if they're feeling any emotion or empathy, then that's going to impact their ability to do a a uh, a clean job uh, on the surgery. So I think there are certainly cases where I think this is exactly right. You you want to have the heart of a child. Now I might not have put it in the terms of but keep it on a jar in your desk or in a jar on your desk. That sounds a little uh, creepy, uh, but I certainly think you you want to have both aspects of that in your personality: the excitement about engineering and technology. Uh, but at the same time, a firmness in being able to deal with the problems that arise. I hate it a lot less after you described it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe uh, maybe there's another one that uh, someone can hate. There's any of those in there, Adam, that uh, bother you? You know, I, I actually agree uh, quite a bit. Maybe I'm more of a systems engineer than I think. <laughs> All right. I like number 14 because it, it rings true sometimes. Nothing is impossible to the man who doesn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Tasks will be complicated because of the difficulty in making understood the scope of the assignment. When we want something very simple and accomplished in a few hours, it's often seen as a very difficult task. Yeah. Very easy to say, yeah, just get these onto my desk by, uh, you know, by five o'clock. When you're like, that's, mm -hmm. that's easily three days worth of work just for setup time. <laughs> yes. But all you're doing is measuring a few voltages and currents. I mean, just put a multimeter on there. Well, that shouldn't take long. No, no, right. Yeah, I could get you some data, but it may not tell you anything. <laughs> but sure, I'll just slap a multimeter on there. Get that one a lot from customers who... uh may not be well-versed in power for my case specifically. And then just mm -hmm. say, hey, do you have uh, data on this and, you know, in the oven at this these set of conditions? And you're like, no, no, I don't. <laughs> that, I can get that to you, but you can wait a month. Uh, I don't have a month. Well, I mean, you know, 
Just just calibrating the oven setup to make sure you're actually measuring a proper temperature could take quite a while. Yeah, so I, I think this sort of works in two ways. If you're the uh, if you're the person doing the requesting, uh, of course, it is easy to say, well, you know, give me the moon and the stars because it doesn't, you know, I don't have to do the work. So it's easy for me to ask you to do uh, to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you if you really want if you don't want the moon and the stars, on the other end, you just want something uh, very simple, you know, very precise. Give me, uh, you know, give me the listing or, or give me uh, the, res- the, sis- the response of the system uh, under, you know, these temperature conditions and these pressure conditions. And you, you have a specific need for this specific information. Then suddenly people, you know, suddenly, as you indicated, Carmen, suddenly people go crazy going, well, Oh, if you want under temperature and pressure, then I need this meter and I need this calibration and I need this permission to be in the lab. And, and all of a sudden that what, what seemingly for the requester was a simple task becomes some sort of complicated ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. Very easily. It's like feature creep, but for data. <laughs> well, we could just add another, you know, just, just repeat those measurements, but, uh, you know, just, just do it in the oven at 50 degrees. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, but then yeah. you got to wheel the oven in and it's not just a bench test anymore. Then you got to worry about the cables connecting into the oven and yeah, I hate temperature data. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll add sometimes um, the requester does actually realize or maybe you don't always understand what the requester is asking. Sometimes it is actually a simple task, but um. You know, or it could be a complicated task, but the requester really only wants a a very high level, and so you know, just be aware of overcomplicating things too much. Yeah, but but you also have to be careful about the assumptions. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. they they may go well. You know, I I want the response under these conditions and pressure uh, conditions, but not understanding there's an interrelationship between pressure and temperature. And so if you give exactly what was asked for, it can be misinterpreted and therefore bad decisions can be made. So again, in this art of engineering, you have to decide when you need to inform, you know, the requester that, that what they're asking for has more implications than they probably realize. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell you what, let us, uh, let us finish off with, uh, one last law All right. for this episode. Um, uh, do you guys have one that's I, I'll, if you don't have one, I'll pick one. But oh, uh, sure, go with your you favorite there, Jeff. All right. So this one sounds true to me. Number sixteen. And number sixteen says, any not not some any analysis will be believed by no one but the analyst who conducts it. But any test will believe by everyone <laughs> except the person who conducted it. Uh, and so I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. You've, I've been in meetings where, uh, if you're doing the, if you've conducted the test, you've been in the lab and you've, you've gathered the data and you've tried to do your best, but you know that the, you know, the temperature, there were a few glitches in the temperature readings or the, the power wasn't quite stable all the way through, but you did your best to compensate. Uh, you come up with this data and you sit in that meeting and everybody you, you explain all these conditions, but everybody forgets that immediately. And they all go, well, the data shows, you know, X, Y, Z, yeah. and they all believe it. And they walk out of that and they go tell all their, you know, all their, uh, uh, contacts and colleagues, it says X, Y, Z. And even though you don't believe it, it says X, Y, Z, because you had to deal with these little, uh, uh, disparities during your testing session, everybody else believes that data. And it means X, Y, Z. On the other hand, if you've gathered a lot of information, not from direct testing, from competitors or that kind of stuff, and you do an analysis of that data that you've you struggled to pull together and verify, and you say, hey, the market is telling us that we need ABC. No one else believes it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they go, no, we know we know better. We we got our guts yes, telling us what to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think you've you've got it. Uh, uh, so any analysis is believed by no one but the analyst, and any test is believed by everyone except the person who conducted it. I think that's probably true. 
Yeah, there's a fair amount of truth to that one. <laughs> well, it's it's probably true that, uh, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, there is a lot of art to the uh, uh, to the making of a successful engineering career, and uh, so the uh, the interesting part is how these you know how these lessons get passed down from one generation of engineers to the next. I suspect a lot of this gets uh, told in stories. Uh, when we talked with uh, Bob Schmidt. He was talking about how he loved stories and that a lot of the lessons of troubleshooting were, were passed along in, in these kind of uh, fireside chats, these stories that engineers would tell one to another. And so I suppose that really these, these lessons that uh, have been written as, un, I guess, now mostly unwritten, but now uh, occasionally written laws, uh, tell us some of that sort of stuff. So are there, do, you, do you guys have any other uh, sort of laws that you've learned along the way, unwritten laws or, or sayings that uh, you found particularly applicable to your engineering careers? Uh, I can't say that I do, no. Other than cover your ass, but that's in one of these, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's in one of these unwritten ones we never talked about yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if, uh, nobody, uh, has any additional, uh, Unwritten laws to add to our collection. Uh, we'll, uh, it's like Fight Club. We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Don't want to give away any of the secrets. Yeah. Yeah. If I give away all my, uh, you know, unwritten laws, then I'm out of a job. Right. Right. Well, if any of our listeners have unwritten rules they've come across, uh, feel free to contact us. You can find a, uh, a link to uh, uh, the contact page on the front of the website. Uh, TheEngineeringCommons.com, and we'd love to hear from you and hear what uh, what unwritten laws might uh, be guiding your engineering career. So, with that, we'll call this the end of an episode, and uh, we'll look forward to getting together uh, the next time on the Engineering Commons. Take care, guys. All right. See you guys next time. See you guys. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.